Well, today is Palm Sunday, so I'm sure all of you brought your palms, so go ahead and go ahead and start waving those. Now, just kidding, ready to go, right? No, man, today is Palm Sunday, and so historically speaking, today marks the beginning of, of Holy Week. And so I would say, you know, unashamedly and, una, and unafraid that this really is, historically speaking again in the church, the most profound and most important week in, in the history of the church. And, and ultimately, you think about it, it leads up to the resurrection. You see Jesus is no longer on the cross, right? It leads to the resurrection. And so what we would say then is that this week and leading up to the moment of resurrection, honestly, is the most important moment and season of the church because it's real simple. So we think about, like, we think about Christmas. Christmas is really important, but let's just be honest. Lots of people are born. There are lots of kids that were born. There are lots of kids probably born on that day in the world that Jesus was born, right? So birth is important, right? And there are lots of people every day who die. Lots of people died the exact same day that Jesus did. But the thing that separates Christianity from every other world religion or philosophy that we will give themselves to is that we worship a risen Savior who prophetically and historically speaking said, I'm going to die in three days. I'm going to rise again. And the idea, let me just say this for those of you who are part of the church or maybe for those of you who are not part of the church, who are not part of the faith, and I would just say this. The thing that we all have to wrestle with and the thing that we all have to come to grips with is the resurrection of Jesus. Everything in Christianity hinges on the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. But I would say this, in the context of of faith, in the context of religion, like there are lots of things that you can argue and lots of points that you can make, but the one thing that you have to wrestle with and come to grips with and come to an answer to is Jesus actually was raised from the dead, which historically speaking makes us say that everything he said then is credible. And so in that, it separates Christianity from every other world religion. And so I want to challenge you with, so if you are a Christian, and maybe Holy Week is just one of those things that, man, you don't, like it's really great, but you don't really think about. I would challenge you, I'd encourage you, I'm asking, would you take, let's take the, let's take the book of John. The thing that I love about John is that Literally, they had the book of John, and, and literally half of John's gospel, listen, half of John's gospel, you know what it focuses on? The last week of Jesus' life. It was so important to John to tell the story of Jesus. He said, man, here's the first you know, 33 years of his life over here right, that I'm going to share about, and really primarily three years of ministry. But it's so important to understand the Holy Week that I'm going to spend the last half of my writing talking about the last week of Jesus' life, beginning with Palm Sunday. We're going to look at Mark's uh, story this morning, but I encourage you to read John because it goes into such detail of the things that are going on. And here's what I'm saying. Man, would you please go and let that come alive to you? Let it come alive. Like is it the U version? That's what it's called. The Bible, the, the Bible app that you have. Then they have like this morning that popped up. There's like ten, fifteen, twenty different reading plans. And I would encourage you to pick one or pick all. I don't really care. Or at least go through and read. Listen, I would I would challenge you read all the stories from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read all of them this this week. Take time and focus. And what I would challenge you with is do a little bit of study and reading. It's really interesting. I want you all to hear this. 
I've said this before, but Tim Keller, it was so funny, Tim Keller's a pastor up in New York, and you know, he was in this debate one time uh, with this atheist, and the guy kept on going back and forth, and the guy said, well, defend the resurrection. And he goes, have you read N.T. Wright's book, Resurrection? He's like, no. He says, well, I don't have to go defend myself because it's pretty clear in that. Why don't you go read it, and you'll understand what I'm saying. Next question, please, right? Because there's such validity and such historical proof and evidence of the resurrection of Jesus that it's something that we can plant our flag on and say, Jesus, you were raised from the dead, and it changes everything. And so as we dive into Holy Week, recognize that Jesus, and everyone hear this, Every one of you have been taught about your personal salvation in Jesus Christ, and that is true, right? We celebrate our personal salvation, but here's the problem with personal salvation. You ready? You got saved, so you're good to go. And you don't think anything else about it. Well, I'm going to heaven. I'm good. Now I'm going to live my life. And the resurrection tells us, I save you. So that, Matthew 28, now that I've done this for you, now the raised from the dead and I'm here, now you go. Just as I went, I'm calling you to go. Just as I brought you salvation, you are to bring salvation. Holy Week is supposed to be a moment of recognition of what Jesus has done and what he's now wanting to do through you. And so, all I'm getting at is it's Palm Sunday. It's the starting point of Holy Week, the most important week, not just in the life of the church, but in our opinion, the most important week to the history of humanity. And so it being the most important week of the, of the history of humanity, then would we pray and ask God to awaken us to what it means, its power, and what it means for your parenting what it means for your marriage, what it means for the people that you work with, what it means for your neighbors, and what it means for those who live around you who do not, listen, who do not know Jesus. It's not just a memory. It's not just a memory that we go, yeah, I'm so glad that happened. It is ever living because the cross of Jesus is still relevant today and for the rest of eternity. So allow that energy, that weight, that awakening moment to awaken us to what God's doing. So with that, Palm Sunday, let's dive into this this morning. When we think about this history, when we think about this idea of Jesus' life, it's marked by radical generosity. We've been talking about the genius of generosity. We've been talking about this radical generosity that defines humanity that we listen it is genius to be generous with our time our money our energy and our resources so if you look at the life of jesus pay attention you look at the life of jesus everyone listen everybody do this just say i'm not tired i need you to focus this morning there's nothing worse for someone speaking who's doing this right Jesus brought you for a purpose. He wants you to engage the message. He has something for you. He's not trying to waste your time. He's not here to waste your time. So please wake up and pay attention. Okay? Please pay attention. Why? Because there's something that God wants to do this morning to bring salvation to you for somebody else. All right? So here we go. It's Palm Sunday. Somebody celebrate. 
Jesus expresses radical generosity. He said, I came to live my life. Do you recognize he was the oldest? His father on earth had died. He was the primary caretaker and provider for Mary. He was the primary caretaker for all of his siblings. He was the oldest. And so in that, he lived his life and he worked. People said, isn't that, isn't that Jesus, right? Isn't that Joseph's son, the carpenter? He was working. He was providing for himself and providing for others, right? And so in this moment, we don't really know what happened, but there's something in his life that I'm guessing, this give me grace here, but this is an opinion, but somewhere along the way, Jesus probably said to him, going into ministry, here's everything that I have, family, right? Here's everything that I've earned, providing for you, that's what I do, right? I'm providing for you, he's a good Jew, he understood culturally, he had to care for and provide, so Jesus, with radical generosity, made sure everything that he ever earned and gained, he was taking care of his mom. She wasn't mad at him, she followed him. She was proud of him. He was doing his, he was doing his job, providing for her. He gave him time, he gave him money, he gave him time. Have you ever read the Gospels and how much time Jesus gave everywhere that he went to people when he didn't have the energy and desire? Jesus got, probably got sick like all of us. He was a human being. You know what I mean? Like he got the, I got a cold, he got the sniffles. It just happens in life. But he gave his time. He gave energy. Do you realize Jesus was a, I mean, he was just an energetic guy. And everywhere he went, he was, you didn't realize he was a human being, so he got tired. But he gave his energy. I mean, could you imagine all of a sudden if 15,000 people started following you, wanting stuff from you every day? I mean, pastors, you know what they do? They get their ivory towers in churches that size and have people who do the ministry for them. Jesus didn't. That's not an indictment on them, but maybe it is, right? And so in that, right? I'm just kidding. Delete that from the podcast, right? You know what I'm getting at, right? Jesus is expressing energy, okay? His energy, time, his resources. There, you know everything Jesus had, he was giving. Man, he's like, even something that he would have to create us in air. Yeah, I'll take your fish, under my fish, and I'll give them away, right? It was great. He was good at using your resources to give them away. It's fantastic how it works. So, no, I mean, he's a radical generosity. And so in this radical generosity, people followed him. But here's the, listen, the thing about people following Jesus is this. Do you recognize every single one of them had expectations of Jesus? Every single one of them anticipated what Jesus would and should do for them. They lived with expectations of what Jesus was, was supposed to do in their life. And so there's anything that we're going to talk about this morning, anything I would say that defines Palm Sunday... It is unmet expectations of the followers of Jesus. If there's one thing you take away that defines Palm Sunday is unmet expectations from his followers. Let's look at the story. Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 1. As they, this is Jesus and his disciples, approached Jerusalem along with all his people, like the followers, and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden, and tie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? 
They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem, went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So let's begin with expectations. How many of you in life, either for yourself or others, you have been or know others who have just been crushed in life because... Of unmet expectations. Like, think back maybe to yesterday. Like you had expectations of a, of a loved one. Or maybe you had expectations of someone that you were going to date back in the day, right? And what did you do? You prayed because you were so sure. Because you had such feelings and emotions for this person that this was the one, right? And you're in eighth grade. And so you had this whole dynamic going down. I think it's eighth graders, right? This whole dynamic going down. Like, oh, yes, I this desire. God gives me the desires of my heart. It's what the scripture says, right? You have these expectations of all this stuff. And nothing happens. And they date your best friend. That never happened to me. Maybe it did. I'm not bitter, Jesus, anymore. No, we have unknown expectations of your spouse. Man, you look at your spouse and say, you should do this and this and this for me, right? And they're unmet. You have unmet expectations in your job. Man, you're going to go, you're like, you see this route that you're going to go, you're going to come this direction, take these steps, and then someone tramples on your dreams and gets the job, right? Yeah, it's going to be over here, I'm going to get this raise, and it never happens. I mean, let's just be honest, the number one movie talking about unmet expectations, Christmas Vacation, Clark Griswold, thinking amen, right? I mean, here's this guy. I mean, man, poor thing over here, right? The whole movie wraps around, he's getting a Christmas bonus. He's going to build a what? Swimming pool, man. It's like everything in the store. And all of a sudden, he gets the letter. And the angelic courses literally go off in the movie. And his eyes go big. And the light, and all of a sudden, he goes, oh, it's the jelly of the month club. And what does he do? He goes crazy. Right? He's angry. He's frustrated. Right? He's overwhelmed. He's just like... He, like, blows a gasket and becomes somebody else, right? That's us. That's us. Here in this story, right, Jesus rides into town on a young colt, a baby donkey. And what do they do? Begin treating him like a conquering king. People welcomed him. Listen, they welcomed him. They did these things. They had very, very real expectations. They had felt expectations of what they thought he would do, what they thought he even could do, right? Listen, I don't know if you've ever done this, but listen, they had expectations of Jesus' power. Have you ever had expectations of Jesus' power? They had expectations of Jesus' authority, that he was the son of David. In the line of David, he was the one to come, right? Right? They believed, listen, they believed in their convictions of who he was. They believed in their interpretations of Scripture, of the many prophetic words and statements that have been made about the Messiah in Scripture. Very clear expectations. 
All their pastors for very long had told them what the coming of the Messiah was going to look like. For hundreds of years, their pastors have said, when does this is the first, it's, a, it's the coming of the Messiah. This is what it's going to look like. And they had very clear expectations. So very specifically, what two expectations, there are two primary overarching expectations. What would they have been? Number one, they would have expected that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. I mean, think about it. Jesus does so many miracles. In fact, just the day before, just the day before coming into Jerusalem, do you know what he did? He healed blind Bartimaeus. Remember? Blind Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus just means son of Timaeus, right? He's over there like blind. He's like, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Shut up. No, no, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus walks over and says, what do you want? <laughs> right? I'm blind, Jesus. Heal me. Your faith is healed. You ball, right? Like, oh my gosh, he really is the Messiah. The Savior, the Anointed One, the One who is to come. Everything we've been reading about for hundreds of years, our pastors have been talking about, this is the One, and we're here. So we're going to affiliate ourselves with Him and follow Him with the expectation that we can be part of this with Him. They're expecting this, right? They're expecting Him, Jesus, to come in, listen, in a very political way, and come in and take button, take, you see the kick button, take names. That's what they're saying, like a, a warrior king to come in, in the moment, to lead a rebellion against Rome and with God's help, he would take his place as the king of all the Jews, kick out all the evil Romans, and that he would reign in Jerusalem. And the hopes and expectations of all the people were looking for, and they were waiting on a Messiah, a warrior king. Then Jesus comes riding on a colt, right? A little donkey. And they knew the scriptures. They knew Zechariah 9.9. It says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This historical precedence for this. There's a guy named something Maccabeus coming two, two hundred years prior and had kind of come in and set up a reign and rule for a short season. I mean, like, this is the moment. They knew Zechariah. They knew the prophecies. There's a tension with that. We'll talk about it in a second, but they still knew it. Oh my gosh, he's the Messiah. Second expectation is that Jesus would save them. As Jesus rode the donkey, people cried out, Hosanna, which means save now. So he's coming in. Oh, save now. Save us now. Save us now. Oh, you are the son of David. You're the one coming in David, the lineage of David. Oh, blessed are you who is coming. Oh, you're the Messiah. Oh, save us. Save us from Rome. Save us from the evil marauders of Rome. Save us from this evil generation of Rome. Oh, my gosh, God, you sent him. Oh, you're going to save us. Listen, when they watched Jesus come in on the donkey again, there would have been tension, but they would have understood the symbolism. And their cries are a true and heartfelt acknowledgement that they needed salvation from this people because they were oppressed. So again, Jesus' followers, what do we see here? They have very clear and real expectations of, of Jesus, who he was, and what he would do for them. As Jesus came into Jerusalem, all their hopes and all their aspirations and all of their expectations hinged on Jesus doing what they expected him to do. All of their hopes and all their aspirations and all their expect expectations hinged on Jesus doing what they thought that Jesus 
should do. So they worshipped him, hoping that this was the moment. It was Sunday, and they're full of worship and praise, just like all of us. Laying down palm branches, crying out, Hosanna. But we know the story. I mean, just a few days later, just a few days later, it was literally the same crowd that was willing and ready to yell, Crucify him! Over and over and over and over again. Why? Because Jesus didn't do what they thought Jesus should do. They had expectations of what he was supposed to do and how he was supposed to do it, when he was supposed to do it, and they didn't do it. So they got crushed in the moment, unmet expectations. And so they said, forget it. Kill him. Crucify him. They had very clear expectations, but in a nice way they had misplaced expectations. And just a more powerful way, they were just wrong. They were wrong expectations of Jesus. So with that in mind, kind of looking back now, because we can do that hindsight in 2020, let's look back at the message of Jesus in the story and see what's actually happening. Number one, what we see in the story is that Jesus came in peace, not to wage war. Jesus came in peace, not to wage war. Throughout history, listen, throughout history, victorious kings like David would ride into cities on fearsome horses to say, ah, right? This, their swords, their swords, you know, raised like rah, coming in. But Jesus came on in a baby donkey. Like, let's just talk about what's not cool. Riding anywhere on baby donkeys. Have you ever seen anybody riding those little baby motorcycles? I don't care how cool they are. They don't look cool. You're not cool if you ride those. I'm just saying. Nobody rides baby donkeys because they think it's cool. Jesus knew better. He knew, he knew a horse was the coolest. He knew at least mean like grown-up donkeys are like a little cooler. But man, baby donkeys aren't cool. They're just not. Donkeys symbolize peace. Baby donkeys symbolize peace and weakness. Jesus, man, writing in, showed that he came with peaceful intentions. Listen, even though they could have understood the allusion to Zechariah 9-9, they would have had a really hard time, listen, understanding that scripture in the moment or receiving its implications in the moment. It would have seemed very peculiar. They were expecting a warrior king. They were expecting like a, like a, like a, a massive, mighty warrior, one who was like David, who, who came and just killed Goliath, right? Who killed the lions with great power to come in. And there comes Jesus and the side. They're like, Hosanna, but why is he on a donkey? He's on a, I don't know, but why is he on a baby donkey? That ain't cool. Okay, but maybe he's just, no, I don't know what's happening, but praise him. Hallelujah, right? Man, they're just open all their hopes and aspirations. It would have seemed at best peculiar. But Jesus came in humility, no fanfare, because he didn't come to wage war. He came in peace. Let's just answer the question, why? Because he loved every Roman. Why did he come wage war against the people he wanted to save? Why would he pit himself at odds with them as if they're evil? 
Because he loved them. And he knew that his moment on the cross was going to bring salvation. Why do you think, Father, he said this from the cross, from those who just murdered him, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing as naive, ignorant, religious-less Romans. God, I've come to save them too. He's come to speak peace to a people who his people were at odds with. Does that remind you of Jeremiah 29 at all we talked about? Seek the peace and prosperity of the city in which I have carried you into exile. For if it prospers, then you too shall prosper. Romans, Babylon, they're the same. Man, Jesus came in peace not to wage war. A donkey symbolizes that the people could not receive it. Number two, Jesus came to save them spiritually. Like, let's just press pause and just recognize Jesus did not want to remove them from Rome. Who would lead Rome to Jesus if there was no one there to preach? If there was no one there who believed? It's the same story of Jeremiah 29. I've carried you into exile as a prophetic testimony for what I'm going to do for the rest of humanity after my resurrection. I'm not going to remove you from Roman rule. I'm not going to remove you from the evil world. I'm not going to call you to live on some calm commune out here apart from society and the brokenness of a world. I would never do that. I've called you to live among people who are broken, who are dying because they need me. Jesus came to save them spiritually. But here's the beauty of it. Jesus deliberately comes on a young colt. It speaks to weakness. It speaks to humility. It speaks to powerlessness. There is nothing more godlike than weakness, humility, and powerlessness. My strength is made perfect in what? Jesus said, as I've done unto you as a servant, humbling myself, then you do for the rest of the world that you come into contact with. You want to see powerlessness. Let's take the kingdom that we love and put it upside down. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, it's prophecy, right? It says, then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll of seven seals. We love lions. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled with the four living creatures and the elders. We love power, and Jesus comes as a lamb. There's nothing cool about lambs either. No man goes, yeah, call me, I'm the lamb, woo. Guys, would you prefer to, don't lie, would you rather be a lion or a lamb? Exactly. It's the upside-down kingdom. It's powerlessness. It's weakness. It's humility. You want to name kingdom traits that define Jesus and to define the rest of the world? Then let's say he wants us to be weak so he can be strong. He wants us to be humble so we get out of the way and Jesus can be exalted. And he wants us to be powerless so his power can flow through. It's not about us. And so Jesus is coming, right? Right, and that's super, listen, so we do clap and we cheer because that's right, we know it, but man, that's not what, what we, what's not what we would have expected. Because those don't seem cool. It is true that he is coming to into rule and coming to save, but not by taking power and killing, but by humbling himself, giving up power and dying. He is going to triumph 
through weakness. The people could not have understood this. It absolutely did not make any sense. He was not going to enter Jerusalem and by his mighty works take his throne and make Israel free from Rome. As everyone expected, instead, Jesus would take his throne by voluntary suffering, death, and resurrection. And then say to all of us, now as you go, go in weakness, go in powerlessness, and go in humility. Because that's the mark of my life. It will be forever, and the kingdom will be marked by these things. That's the upside-down kingdom. Don't look like a kingdom of man, look like a kingdom of God. Do we strive for power, or do we strive for weakness? Do we strive to be known, or do we strive for humility by nature? What do we strive for? The takeaway I want us to have this Palm Sunday revolves around expectations. Here in the story, we see those. They have very, very real, clear, and powerful expectations of what Jesus was going to do, but when, when he would do it and how he would do it. And they were wrong. And in their response, rather than submit to what Jesus was actually doing, what they do? They turn their back on him in frustration. They turn their back on him in anger. And herein lies our tension. What do you do? What do I do when Jesus doesn't meet our expectations? That's the message of Palm Sunday. What do we do with unmet expectations? What do we do when our expectations of how Jesus moves are not met? When Jesus doesn't work the way we think he's going to work? Man, how do we respond? When we go to God, when we go to God, we usually go because we need something, don't we? We want to do something. When we go to him, what do we have? Expectations of, well... If you're going to ask Jesus, this is probably what you should do. And this is probably how you should do it. And definitely here's the timeline of when it should happen. Right? We have that in our head. We do. And so we all go to Jesus with very clear expectations. Have you done that in the church? You go in and say, well, they should acknowledge this gift in me. Right? You go to your job like, doesn't my boss know what I'm doing? Doesn't my spouse understand how awesome I really am? Your kids are like, my parents just don't understand. I'm awesome. How oh, is that getting my case, right? We have all these expectations of people who have expectations in life. And we go to God, we have expectations. I mean, it's one of those things, man, like, but here's the deal. We have these expectations, and we feel so needy in the moment. But then we, we go to God and say, oh, God, do this. But here's the deal. I know people only go to God when they need him. They only go to God when they're not getting what they want. But once something is breakthrough, what do they do? They don't think about Jesus anymore. Just go about their life. As a pastor, I call it the 24-hour rule. People call me all the time. They're like, my life is in a shambles, right? Huh? And they want me to pick up all their emotion in the moment of like how bad things are and how overwhelmed they are. And I have one 24-hour rule. In 24 hours, God can do more of his grace than I can as a pastor. And so I usually get a 24-hour rule. Say, all right, man, let's talk in 24 hours. I'm praying for you. I love you. talking 24 hours. And what happens nine times out of ten times? Things are better. And guess what happens? They just don't need me anymore. It's funny how that works. We go to people, they need, we, they, we go to people, oh, we need you. But then we go, we want, like, oh, I'm out of here. You have friends like that? We do that to Jesus all the time. We have these expectations. Ah, but then we're like, oh, we're good. When we go to God, we do these things. In this story, he'll believe, right? That they needed Jesus. They needed Jesus to bring judgment on those who were lording over them, the evil Romans. What they really needed was someone who could come down and bear their judgment from sin. They needed a Savior who could save them from themselves and the power of sin. They wanted God to make their lives easier by destroying 
the physical enemy, the Romans. God wanted to give them freedom of their spiritual enemy and give them eternal life. Their view was short-sighted. God's view was eternity-sighted. See, that's the point for us. As we come with a very clear view of what God should do and how often we are unaware of what God's actually trying to do. If they had read Jeremiah 29 and remembered the story, they would have recognized how God was moving. Because remember we read in Jeremiah 29, we studied their life, their life. What they did, they had to come and serve and humble themselves and pray for their enemies and to be God to them and to bring Yahweh to them. But they had totally lost sight because they just saw them among evil people. Expectations of what God was going to do. So a few thoughts to consider in this unmet expectations and what Jesus is doing. Number one, expectations must continually be evaluated in our life. This is like hyper-practical. Evaluations, even expectations, must continually be evaluated in our lives. Do you realize, listen, this is important, this is real practical. Do you realize how many of your tensions in life, your broken relationships in life, are based off of unrealistic, unmet expectations? Like your tension with your spouse is because you have an unrealistic, unmet expectation. Your tension with your children, maybe, is because you have an unrealistic, unmet expectation of your children. Like, you put on them what you wish you had been, and so you expect them to perform for you, which is not God's will. And so you're getting frustrated with your kids that something's wrong with them. And it's you! You're the problem! Why? Because you're just like people on Palm Sunday. You have unrealistic expectations that you've never evaluated to make sure they're actually from Jesus. How many of you live frustrated with your spouse? And every day you go to bed thinking about the one bad thing or the negatives about them. Because you expect them to be perfect and to be your savior and to make you feel lovable and loved. That's not their job. That's Jesus' job. It's Jesus' job to meet all of your needs. Why? Because every human being, including your spouse, is going to let you down. So don't put unrealistic expectations on your relationships. Across the board. Some of you got mad at your, I don't know, somebody ten years ago because someone didn't do what they were supposed to do and everybody got their feathers all ruffled up and you just all split. And you're all in sin. It's your fault. Because you did not humble yourself in the moment and serve them in weakness and become the lamb. Not so you could, maybe so they could murder you. So you can actually be Jesus to them. I mean, martyrdom is one of the greatest values in all of Scripture. I'm just saying. Have you ever wrestled through what it means to be a martyr for Jesus every day of your life? I'm just saying, process that. You think your job is to win. Find that in Scripture. This was not a win. In the eyes of the world. No one got it. We would call it the ultimate win, wouldn't we? We celebrate it. We wear pastels. We love it. Easter's awesome. Because Jesus lost. Yay! You know what I mean? 
in the eyes of the world, with expectations of people, it looked like a massive failure. Again, it's just a hundred times before. Jesus' ministry in the eyes of the world was a complete failure. He had three years of ministry, and only this many people followed him at the end. A hundred people. That's not success in our world, right? Expectations must continually be evaluated. Jesus follows expectations, but they were unrealistic. I will just say this and hear this. I said this a jillion times. People get frustrated with me all the time. And I just say to people, listen, an unspoken, unrealized expectation is just not fair of anybody. If I don't know you expect something from me, has never been communicated, how can I meet that? Or how can I tell you if I'm able to meet it? Do you live life like that? People have unrealized, unmet expectations, and they're mad at you, and you're like, what did I even do? Well, I'm mad you didn't do this. You're like, we never even talked about that. Is that fair? Did I tell you I was going to do that? That's not fair. That's what we're talking about here. With Jesus, we have unspoken, unmet expectations of him, and we do just what they did. We get angry. We get bitter. We, get, we turn away. It's like, whatever, God. Rather than taking time, number two, Recognizing God gives us, God gives us not according to what we ask, but according to what we need. First John five fourteen. This is the confidence. I didn't put this on the screen, so I apologize. I'll just read it to you. I came up, I realized it in first service and just wrote it down, sitting up here actually. First John five fourteen. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us and He moves. Right. So what does that do for us? Well. We need to recognize that God recognizes our needs. He recognized the needs of the people. And it was by grace and his mercy and his love for us that he did not release them from Roman rule and take over as a warrior king, right? And in our lives, I'm not saying all these pieces, like there are things that, I mean, we've heard the Lord's will, all these pieces, but, man, we get to sit down sometimes and go, all right, Jesus, I need to hear your will. Before I tell you what you should do, I should make sure I sit still and listen and evaluate where I am and make sure I hear your voice, God. Because I want to ask according to your will, not my own. It's a story of unmet expectations. How many times have we been confused at how God moves in situations? Only to realize days, weeks, months, or maybe years later, wow, I really sure am glad that God did that. (laughs) And we just are aware of this. Like, these are things you have to wrestle through, isn't it? Like, it's easy to be a follow of Jesus, and it's the hardest thing you'll ever do. Man, we've got to die to these things and be aware if we embrace this. And as we begin to embrace that God, listen, that God gives to us, not according to what we ask, but according to what we need, then we come and say, God, I want what you need. God, I want, I want what I need. I want you to move in power. God, would you awaken me? That's why, listen, that's why it's so, listen, it's why it's, I want you to hear this, with great tenderness. It's why God wants to be in relationship with you. Do you recognize that with the people you're closest with, that you love them, but you have no idea what's going on in their life because you haven't talked to them in months? And so you call them, what do you feel guilty? You're like, oh, I should probably, like, what? You went to the hospital? I had no idea. Why? Because you hadn't talked to them. Do you still love them? Do they still love you? Absolutely. But isn't the person that you know everything going on and, and what their needs are and their desires based on who you spend the most time with because they have open lines of communication to a, like to throw the ball and throw the ball back in communication and you know what's going on? That's why relationships is so imperative. Not so you can make God happy with you for spending time with him, but so that he can speak to you. God wants to relate to you because he has lots to say. 
It's, just, it's as simple as that. Why do you have a quiet time every morning? So to be a good Christian? No, so that you can, you can just talk. That's why you have quiet times. Because he has things to say. And part of those things is giving healthy expectations. Third thing, I'm done. God's provision far exceeds our expectations. God's provision far exceeds our expectations. We come to God with our felt needs in the moment many times, needs that are short-sighted if we're fully honest, right? But God moves on our behalf and he pours out his richest blessing. What God does ultimately is greater than we could ever hope or ever imagine. And so in this, Palm Sunday is about teaching you, if I can say this, that you have unrealistic expectations of Jesus in some areas. That some of your broken relationships with your spouse, with your children, with your family, with your neighbors, people you work with, is because you have unrealistic expectations. And let me just take a little bit further. Some of you live in tension because you just have wrong theology. What do I mean by that? Well, do you realize that for hundreds and hundreds of years, that the pastors, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the teachers had been teaching a theology about the coming of the Messiah, and they were all wrong. I just wonder if we have anything wrong in our theology of the second coming of Jesus. I'm just saying, right? If they'll all miss it, right? What's to say we're not all missing it today in the sense of understanding a post-trip, pre-trip, blah, 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 whatever crap, right? It's like, man, who knows? That's why you go spend time with Jesus. We're aware he's coming again. And what's it going to look like? I don't know, but I'm sure glad he does. So I look for his thing. I live my life prepared like tomorrow's the day. But my theology, man, how many times is it messed up? How many times is it messed up as it relates to expectations? How many times is it messed up because, man, here's the deal. When you get to heaven, it's not going to work the same before Jesus said what my pastor said. Because I get it wrong. In the last eight and a half years preaching at Vintage, I can, I can tell you I've gotten it wrong. I don't know how many times because I've lost count. I've had to apologize to multiple people because they come to me with things. I get it wrong. My point in this is, man, Jesus, I've got to give myself to study and to learn so that my expectations are accurate, biblical, and grounded in Jesus. Not because somebody told me what to believe when I was in vacation Bible school. They may have gotten it right. They may have not. That's why it's imperative that you take time and you learn and you grow and you sit with Jesus. You read, you invest, you listen, whatever it may be. And allow God this Palm Sunday to help you create realistic healthy expectations that he can't wait to meet according to his will and the things that we ask. Because before we ask, we just sit still to listen and say, God, first, your will be done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. And Lord, this is not just a message of like, hey, you're terrible, you should do it better. God, it's a it's a message of your heart to say, my gosh, I so want to move, but you're looking the wrong way. And you say, I'm over here. And I just pray, Jesus, for each person. Here's the deal, Lord. Like you and I know, I've got people on, we've got people on each end of the spectrum of expectations. 
Man, some of you I prayed things that were seemingly were just so clear and just didn't happen. It's devastating. And well, there's a wrestling. You have grace and you have mercy and you have, I mean, you have so much love for those people. And you have people over here just like in their arrogance have really bad ideology. And I just pray, God, for all of us, Lord. I thank you have grace for every single one of us to meet us, to speak to us, and to challenge us. I pray, Jesus, today that you would help us to begin being honest about this upside-down kingdom, about why you came, what it means, what our lives are supposed to look like, that we'd be honest about our tensions and our frustrations, and we'd be less, because, Jesus, you were never, listen, Jesus, we were never quick, you know, you're never quick to defend yourself, but we are quick to defend ourselves at every moment. We spend more time fighting for self than anybody else in the world. Why? I pray, Jesus, that you would help us to become more like you. You would challenge us. You would raise the biblical understanding of expectation of what our lives should look like on an everyday basis in the context of all of our relationships. And that we would be not quick to offense, but quick to mercy, quick to love, quick to grace. I pray right now that you would speak to every single one of us about the top three areas in our lives right now that are, that are causing us to feel overwhelmed that just shouldn't if we would just take those expectations and hand them over. And I pray, God, you would meet us all in those places. Amen. This morning, I invite you to respond. Ministry teams will be on both sides like they always are. If you have things you want prayer for this morning, no matter what it is, we would love to pray for you. We have communion available like every Sunday just to come and celebrate the goodness of God and His, His, His reality in our lives. We have these baskets here on both sides, my right and left. This, this is for our every, like our every day, like our weekly tithes and offerings that God has you give. And right here, this is our commitment cards for Rooted Initiative. I talked about it earlier, right? And so if you came this morning, you're part of the Vintage family, you've yet to, to give your commitment, this will be the morning to do that. We're going to celebrate it on Easter morning. If you don't have a card, there's pens and there's cards right here. You can just take time during ministry time to take those. And I just encourage you to pray and encourage you to pray into that. God, what would you have us give? Sacrificially above and beyond, Lord, what I'm comfortable with, what I know requires faith of you. I invite you to give. So with that, you respond to the Lord, leads and come back up here in a minute and pray us out. Do you respond this morning?